1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 10. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. All right. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. That's where we'll be this afternoon. 1 Timothy chapter 6, looking at verses 3 through 10. Uh, let me pray for us, and we'll get started. Father, I thank you for uh, King's Cross uh, and just the, um, just the many evidences of your grace uh, through um, my brothers and sisters here. Um, I just praise you for stories like that, um, that uh, my wife Alyssa shared, and uh, just how the saints at King's Cross, uh, this church family, um, is not only so willing to declare the gospel, but to display it with our lives. Um, we know that there's a world uh, around us that needs hope, uh, that needs healing, uh, that needs more than anything just the hope of the gospel. And so, um, Lord, we pray that uh, as we spend time in your word, that you would uh, just shape us and equip us all the more uh, to live for your glory and for the good of others. Would you help us, Spirit, with that? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're now in the last chapter of uh, this great little book of 1 Timothy. Paul is back talking about false teachers yet again uh, here in verses 3 through 10. Uh, this is at least the fifth time that he's talked about false teaching, and you kind of get the sense that this is important to him, right? Uh, and so we're going to go ahead and walk through this text. Here's the big idea. I'll give it to you right up front. It's that false doctrine often leads to restlessness in the love of comfort. Restlessness and the love of comfort, but true doctrine leads to contentment in the love of Christ. Here's your first point, is that preaching and teaching needs to be doctrinal. It needs to be doctrinal for our preaching to be faithful, for Bible teaching to be faithful. It needs to be doctrinal. We see this in the first couple verses here, verses 3 and 4. It says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teachings that accord with godliness, then he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. You see that Paul here, just even the language that he uses, he's got great, heavy, weighty concern for what we would call good doctrinal preaching. And look, this is important for us, not, not, just, at, not just at that time when Paul wrote this, but for all time. I mean, the Holy Spirit preserved this letter in Scripture so that we could have it today, so that we could be challenged by this same challenge today. I think it's common 
uh, all too common in today's church, especially on the heels of the, the secret movement of the 90s and two, early 2000s. Uh, it's common to say things like, uh, we don't need doctrinal preaching. What we need is teaching and preaching that's inspirational. That makes us feel good. That's what people want and need. But doctrinal preaching is important for the body of Christ. It's important because it's formative. It forms us as God's people. It's nourishing to us. It's for our health. The people of God need the word of God. We need to be in it. We need to be reading it. We need to be feeding on it, hearing it, meditating on it, praying over it. It's not just about putting new information into our minds, but, but doctrinal preaching and teaching is about not just what goes into our minds. It's also about, about transforming our hearts from the inside out. The Holy Spirit uses biblical doctrine to pierce our hearts and to, to satisfy the longings of our souls and to draw us closer to Christ, our Savior. That's why we need it. We need good doctrine. We need doctrinal preaching. I think some of us, even some Christians, have an aversion to that word, doctrine. They think it sounds cold and dry and lifeless. Maybe, maybe you think of like these ivory tower theologians who just argue about who is more right. Uh, or, or maybe you hear that word doctrine and you think that it's, it's about being cerebral and being heady. There's a, sort of, there's a sort of like laziness and apathy with how we talk about this concept doctrine. But I want to argue it doesn't have to be that way. Like we'll learn the lyrics to our favorite songs. We'll study the stock market, its ups and downs. We'll, we'll, we'll look into and read all about the latest political news, world news. We'll study the stats of our favorite sports teams and players. We'll look up all the backstories uh, going on in the, in the MCU, right? Uh, for the older folks, that's a Marvel Cinematic Universe, all right? Uh, it's trying to figure out how these characters fit with one another. When it comes to studying the truth and goodness and beauty of the Lord our God, we'll go like, yeah. There's just appalling apathy there. The Bible tells us that doctrine, it matters. And it matters because you can't worship God without doctrine, because doctrine is about knowing him. And if you're going to love him, you need to know him. You need to learn about him. Um, for example, um, I would say, ask my wife to forgive me, because I forgot to clear this example by her before the service. Um, I think I may have used it before, so I think we're going to clear but if, uh, I, if I told you that I loved my wife's beautiful, blonde, springy, curly hair and just how it just bounces around all cute when she does her perfect little cartwheels, you might think that sounds cute and endearing, unless you actually knew my wife, uh, because her hair is actually long and brown and straight, uh, and she cannot do a cartwheel to save her life. Right, which I do find cute and endearing, but if you know this about Alyssa, you know that she cannot, she, like she took lessons for cartwheels. Um, sorry, I, that, I don't think I've shared that part before, but she's, like when she was a kid and it just, it just never stuck, right? Um, we used to think it's because she's got these long legs, but then our daughter, who has inherited her legs, and our daughter does like cartwheels down the stairs to breakfast. She goes, car, she has cartwheels everywhere she goes. She'll probably do cartwheels into this room after, after the service, right? Like she's auditioning for like kids' service 
Cirque du Soleil or something, right? We don't know where she got that from, right? Maybe she got it from me from my breakdancing days when I was a, a wee Filipino lad and growing up through the 80s and 90s, right? But what <laughs> one, one author... One author, he actually talks about how the idea of studying God for some people sounds, can sound cold and theoretical, as if God were a frog carcass to dissect in a lab, or a set of math proofs that we memorize. But he says studying God does not have to be that way. Theology doesn't have to be that way. Studying doctrine doesn't need to be that way. It can be like studying him the way you study a sunset that leaves you just speechless and, and mesmerized. Or the way you study someone that you passionately love. Doctrine does not have to be dry and lifeless. I mean, what's the alternative? What's the alternative to that? Is it ignorance? You want that? Apathy? Believing in falsehood? And look, if you press down far enough, we all believe a set of doctrines. The question is whether those doctrines are actually true or not. We're either building our lives on the reality of what God is really like, on how he's actually revealed himself, what he's really about, or we're basing it on our own imagination and misunderstandings. Doctrine matters because it's simply just what the Bible says about who God is, his nature, and his work in the world. And so what Paul's concerned about is doctrine, not just doctrinal heresy, but doctrinal purity. You see, sometimes the doctrinal error is like completely overt and obvious, like denying the Trinity, right? One of the basic classical Christian doctrines, that there's one God who eternally exists in three persons, or, or that, that Jesus and Satan are brothers that were both, both created, brothers of one another, that Jesus was not eternally existent, right? Would, like what the Mormons teach. But sometimes the doctrinal error is not so much overt, but, it, but, it, but it's subtle, maybe a little below the surface, not as clear. It's subtle, but deadly. Like saying that Jesus primarily wants you to be happy in this life instead of holy. Or that you can belong to Jesus and grow in the gospel outside of a meaningful relationship with other believers in a local church. Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, discernment is not the ability to tell the difference between right and wrong. Rather, it is telling the difference between right and almost right. So what is our standard of good doctrine? How do we determine what good doctrine is? Paul elaborates on that when he says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. And so that phrase, uh, the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness is a blank, blanket phrase for, for the Bible. The things that Jesus taught. The things that Paul taught and the apostles taught, which are based on the things that Jesus taught. It's, it's strictly according to the teachings of Jesus. That's how we determine what good doctrine is. In other words, it's not some new teaching that no one's never heard of before. And so the question, if you ask him the question, like, hey, is this teaching new? Is it, is it novel? Is it, is, it, is it not found in history? If the answer is yes, then it's wrong plain and simple. And notice what else Paul says. He says it leads to what? It leads to godliness. 
In other words, it doesn't just leave you filled up with heady information and then, and then unchanged in the character of your life. No, it transforms your life so that the truth of the gospel gets lived out in a life of what he calls godliness and holiness and your commitment to Christ. You see, false teachers of the day, they were, they were claiming that they've got these special revelations from God that the apostles never received. They said like, hey, look, we know that Jesus never said this. We know the apostles never said this. You know you can't find this in the Old Testament. But hey, look, God revealed this to me, and I just want you guys to know this because um, uh, the, the, like, I'm, God, I'm God's sort of spokesman, right? And they would be teaching things outside the canon of Scripture. And so they sort of postured themselves as these mouthpieces of the Holy Spirit to tell the church what they had never heard of before. But Paul says, look, that's not good doctrine, that's a different doctrine. Paul says, I want you to contrast that different doctrine with my teaching. He says, my teaching is that same old story. That same old-time, old-fashioned gospel. The promises of God that have been foretold in the Old Testament, that are revealed in the, in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says, what I have to tell you is really just what Jesus had to tell you. What I have to tell you is just what the other apostles had to tell you, which again is what Jesus had to tell you. We're not making it up as we go along. We got it from Jesus. We got it from his word. Look, that's why we value the preaching of the Bible, which is God's revelation of who he is and what he's done and who his will and his ways and his way of salvation. That's where we get what we teach. And so Paul says, hey, if anyone teaches a different doctrine from that, don't listen to them. So maybe a question to ask is, as, as just, just by way of application, that uh, you can ask as, as uh, maybe if you're not a teacher, uh, a practical question to ask is, is, what kind of teaching is it then that you are looking for? What kind of teaching is it that you desire? Is it the kind that just tickles the ear? Or is it the kind that's actually rooted in the word and the reality of, of who God really is? Number two, Paul says, false teachers are proud and ignorant. Proud and ignorant. You see, Paul doesn't stop right there. He, he, he says that if anyone teaches these different doctrines, verse 4, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. Now, here, Paul describes the person who teaches different doctrine than the ones that are laid out in the Bible. And he describes them as conceited, as those who understand nothing, as those who have a morbid interest in controversial questions and quarrels about words. I remember years ago, I had this seminary professor that, was, uh, that talked talk to us about uh, this, this brilliant guy that he knew who taught at another school who was just known for his rhetoric. He would wax eloquently and winsomely about all kinds of things, but those all kinds of things were untrue things. My professor, he said, all you need is a little intelligence and a little pride, and you've got the perfect recipe for heresy. And that's what Paul's saying here. You see, we, we sort of talked about this last week, but I think it bears repeating. The irony is that false teachers, they'll claim that people who talk about doctrine that is right and doctrine that is wrong, like false teachers will claim that those people are arrogant. 
But how is it arrogant to submit your heart and mind to what God has clearly revealed about himself and that the Spirit has preserved throughout generations in the Word of God? I would actually say it's far more arrogant to, to be the person that says, what I think about God, about who he is and how you should live is, is what's true. See, Paul goes on to say that these teachers, they're just obsessed with controversy. They're obsessed with quarrels about words. This is what Jesus said to the Pharisees when he said that one of their problems is how they would, they would strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. If you remember that, that, from, that example he gave from the Gospels, what Jesus was getting at is he's saying like, look, you guys are like straining out like a gnat in your drink. You know when there's like a little gnat in your drink, right? Uh, and, then, and then you kind of see it as it's going down and you're like, ah, right? And you try and like take it out and you're like wondering like, man, I'm glad I saw this. Like how often does this happen that I'm not looking at it, right? Uh, I'm not the only one that has that thought. So, uh, but like Jesus is saying like, look, you strain a gnat out of your drink, which would probably just do you no harm but you're willing to swallow a camel, which would probably do you a lot of harm. He says that's all kinds of silly. When false teachers do that, they're marginalizing the gospel of grace. You see, true Christianity is centered on the main thing. You're not straining out a gnat. You're not swallowing a camel. True Christianity is gospel-centered. That means you keep the first things first and you don't obsess uh, uh, with, with an overbearing weight on what's secondary or tertiary. That means you're gospel-centered. You're not politics-centered. You're not purpose-centered. You're not personality-centered. No, it's centered on Jesus Christ as a fulfillment of all God's promises through his perfect life, his atoning death, and his triumphant resurrection and ascension to heaven and the promise that he'll return again. You see, it lifts up Jesus as the perfect second Adam. That's what gospel-centeredness does. You lift up Jesus as the perfect second Adam. You lift him up as the ultimate son of Abraham through whom the whole world is blessed. You lift him up as the true Israel, the true son of David, the true lamb of God as our redeemer and savior and cross-bearing king. You lift him up as the true temple, the presence of God, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and end. You look to him as our only hope in life and in death and through resurrection. False teachers, on the other hand, they don't major on the majors. They major on the minors. They yell about the things that the Bible whispers about. They speak clearly and authoritatively on what is left up to freedom of conscience. They'll say things like, hey, if you're a real Christian and you're going to follow our rules, you're going to go to our schools, you're going to belong to our denomination or our tradition instead of teaching the gospel of grace from the word of God and keeping that at the center. We need to humbly point to the word of God, which is where we meet Jesus. It's where we meet faith and hope and love, truth, goodness, and beauty and grace, and we need grace. We talked about the nature of false teachers, but I want you now to look at, at what it is that these false teachers, what they produce. Uh, this is our third point. That false doctrine produces worldly character and promotes worldly gain. 
False doctrine produces worldly character and promotes worldly gain. So what does their, the, the, these false teachers, what does their different doctrine lead to? At the end of verse 4 and then on in through verse 5, Paul says, which produce, in other words, their teaching, their different doctrine produces envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Look, sometimes learning the truth of the word can be hard for Christians because it confronts us, right? It challenges us. And so we wrestle with it. We struggle with it. And if you care about truth, you're also going to care about how truth should lead to a transformed life, a changed life, a life of loving one another and serving one another, and bearing with one another, committing to one another, instead of trying to one-up one another, or compete with one another. Competing about who is more smart, or more holy, or more righteous. Listen, in our tradition, in the Reformed tradition, we care about the truth a lot. Right? One of our, our values is the authority of God's scripture alone, sola scriptura, as they used to say uh, in the Latin during the Reformation. But if we're not careful, if we're not careful, that can lead to a sort of spiritual pride that looks at ourselves as being smarter than others or better than others. I think one way to sort of guard ourselves against that is by making sure that the truth of God as we're receiving it, is making us and keeping us humble. That's actually leading us to become more Christ-like, leading us to be more godly, leading us to be more committed to placing our lives under God's authority and humility, leading us to live for the glory of God and the growth of one another and the good of our neighbors. Ray Ortland, uh, I love this guy. He's a retired pastor uh, out of Nashville area. Um, his church belongs to the same church planting uh, network that we belong to. Uh, and Ray Ortland, he talks about, uh, rather Ray Ortland Jr., uh, he talks about how when you, when you really get the gospel and when you really understand the gospel, then, then you're not just concerned about being right about the gospel, but being gracious with the gospel. He calls this gospel culture. And he uses this equation that I think is, is super helpful uh, and winsome. He says that gospel doctrine without gospel culture, that just leads to hypocrisy. Gospel culture without gospel doctrine leads to fragility. In other words, you've got, you've got nothing strong to stand on. But when you've got doc gospel doctrine and gospel culture, Therein lies real power. Therein lies the real power of grace. I love the way that Jonathan Edwards breaks this down in, in distinguishing gospel culture from non-gospel culture. It's kind of a long quote, so bear with me, but, but I want you to hear his words. He says, spiritual pride is the main door by which the devil comes into the hearts of those who are zealous for the advancement of Christianity. It is the chief inlet of smoke from the bottomless pit to darken the mind and mislead the judgment. It is the main source of all mischief the devil introduces to clog and hinder a work of God. 
Spiritual pride tends to speak of other person's sins with bitterness or with laughter and levity and an air of contempt. But pure Christian humility rather tends either to be silent about these problems or to speak of them with grief and pity. Spiritual pride is very apt to suspect others, but a humble Christian is most guarded about himself. He is as suspicious of nothing in the world as he is of his own heart. The proud person is apt to find fault with other believers, that they are low in grace, and to be much in observing how cold and dead they are, and to be quick to note their deficiencies. But the humble Christian has so much to do at home and sees so much evil in his own heart and is so concerned about it that he is not apt to be very busy with the other hearts. He is apt, rather, to esteem others better than himself. See, gospel doctrine should produce gospel culture and gospel hearts that seek to make much of God and do good to others. If we read on, you see that different doctrine taught by these false teachers and not only promotes worldly character, as we talked about, but also worldly gain. Worldly gain. I want you to skip down to verse 9 with me. It says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So Paul just straight up comes out and he says, Look, these, these false teachers, they treat godliness as a means of almost like material gain. In other words, they think that they're here to get rich off the gospel. They're less concerned about your holiness than they are with your immediate happiness because they want you to be happy in this life so that they can gain from being popular among you, so they can sell books, so that they can grow a crowd, so they can make money. I want you to... Notice that Paul doesn't say that money is the root of all evil, but the love of money. That's when your desire, your desires, that's when they're, they're centered on the things of this world, on the comforts of this world. And when that happens, you're in trouble because those things, those things of this world, those are things that are going to fade. Those are the things that the Bible says moths and rust destroy. But God, He never fades. So he wants you to depend on him, to be satisfied in him, to find your hope in him. Paul wrote this over 2,000 years ago, but, but, but it could, or sorry, about 2,000 years ago, but it could have been written really just yesterday. If you look at the New York Times Christian bestseller list, you'll find a list of books that are doing exactly what he's talking about here. Or if you turn on cable TV to the televangelists like any day of the week, you'll find that nine out of ten of those programs claiming to be Christian are doing what Paul is talking about right here, turning Christianity into a means of personal gain. Look, the most, the most common false teaching in the English-speaking world today is the teaching that God wants you to be physically healthy and material wealthy. And that if you're not, it's because you don't have enough faith. Or if you're not, it's because you haven't committed yourself to their, to their secret teachings of that one particular person 
on the TV, or you haven't given money to their ministry in an act of faith. I mean, you've literally got preachers out there who've made the news uh, in this last year raising money for their private jets. That's happened twice. Those are just the ones we know of. We call this the prosperity gospel, and it's no gospel at all. It's a false gospel. Paul wants to make it clear that that is not what Christianity is about. And look, I, th I think we need to really reckon with this, this impulse that we have towards worldly comfort and worldly gain, because in the West, we are obsessed with it. We're obsessed with convenience. We're obsessed with comfort. We're obsessed with materialism. The prosperity gospel, it teaches that Jesus is not so much a savior who reconciles us with God, but he's a means to health, wealth, and prosperity. And we need to reckon with this because, because this is, it's dangerous in the way that it can be subtle. Because prosperity preachers, they'll mention Jesus frequently. They'll quote scripture frequently out of context. They'll talk about how you can have your best life now if you just believe it. If you just work for it, if you just ask for it. This kind of gospel thrives in a culture like ours that idolizes comfort. But it denies Jesus as a suffering servant that he is. And because of that, this false gospel leads to restlessness. It never satisfies. Because you're constantly looking for more and more things to satisfy your soul with what only an eternal relationship with God could. The Bible's clear that our best life is not found in anything that this world can offer, and that faith is not a means to possessions. And this leads us to our fourth and last point, which says that true godliness with contentment is real gain. You want real gain? You want satisfying gain? You want lasting gain? Then you go for true godliness, which includes contentment. Verse 6, 7, and 8 says, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. In other words, the gospel, the true gospel, the gospel of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus does bring real gain. It brings great gain. But it's not the kind of gain that the false teachers are talking about. The false teachers will teach about health and wealth and comfort like it's some radical truth. But it's really just a regurgitation of what our materialistic consumer culture values already at the bottom line, which is not radical at all. It's conformed to the whims and trends and desires of the world that we live in and find ourselves in. What's truly radical is what the Apostle Paul is contending for. What's truly radical and countercultural is what Paul is saying. What's truly radical is what Jesus taught. They taught that the gospel brings great gain, but it's not the kind of gain that the world talks about. It's the kind that comes with true contentment. It's the kind that talks about believers who've encountered the hope of grace in Jesus who've taken up their crosses to follow him daily, to die to their sin, to die to their selves, and to live for Christ and for one another and for the good of the world. 
When you stand on that gospel, the real gospel, you're standing on solid ground. Your standing is secure because you're no longer controlled by the things that this world has to offer. And it's then and only then that you can actually truly enjoy the things of the world as mere gifts. Truly enjoy them as gifts because you're no longer looking to them as functional saviors that are constantly letting you down, causing anxiety and restlessness. This world and the things of the world will fade. We can't take anything out of it, Paul says. But God, on the other hand, he never fades. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah 40, verse 8, it says that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand, what does it say? Forever. The word of God will stand forever. The gospel will satisfy forever. What is the true teaching that we need to hear? The true teaching that we need to hear is the message that centers on Jesus himself, that we are not sufficient to accomplish for ourselves what God intends and promises to accomplish for us in Jesus. It won't be anything from this world that saves us. It'll be from the hand of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so maybe like a, a closing question to ask yourself with would be, where is it that we place our hope and confidence? Like truly, when you strip all the layers back, where is it that you place your hope and your confidence? Let it be in him, in Christ, in his sovereign saving work, and in the word of the gospel. False, different doctrine leads to restlessness and the love of comfort. But true doctrine leads to contentment and the love of Christ. Where do we get the power to remember this? Where is it that we find the power to actually live this out? We get that power by looking to Jesus. We look to Jesus. When we look to Jesus, we see that the gospel announces that God, who is the Almighty One, is so unlike, so different than our world's Almighty Ones. God has no swagger. He doesn't flex. He doesn't posture himself to be something other than he is. He's not pushing himself to the head of the line. That's what our world does. Jesus does nothing from rivalry, even though we pick a fight with him. He does nothing from conceit. He's not conceited, even though we, we puff ourselves up against him. He made himself to be nothing. He made himself to the point of nothing. He took the form of a servant, Philippians tells us, to the point that he humbled himself, humbled himself in obedience all the way to his death on the cross. And he did that for us. 
He's not using others to hoard his own worldly kingdom for himself. He gave up his life. So that sinners like you and sinners like me can join his forever family and be citizens in his unending kingdom. He exchanged his heavenly crown for a crown of thorns so that you can know true contentment and have real, genuine, great, and foreverlasting gain. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.